remember this, that the ideas in academia take about five years to trickle down into the culture, and then they just mushroom. So ideas matter. They're huge. So what he says is this, God creates a world that now contains evil and has a good reason for doing so. So here's how the new list looks. God exists, is omnipotent, omnibenevolent, and created the world. God created a world that now contains evil and had a good reason for doing so. Therefore, the world contains evil. That's what you do. Okay? So if there's no logical inconsistency, this deductive problem of evil is solved. Uh, So that means that theism is not logically false, which is really important. But then there's what's called the inductive problem of evil, which deals with probability. And what it uh, purports is this, that um, the, uh, that, um, the inductive problem of evil shifts to a more modest assertion that it is probably false that God is, exists because there is evil. And so what advocates of this view want to do is they put up evil as that which tips the scales of probability against theism, against that God exists. And one of the questions, you know, that uh, you've got to ask yourself is, why might God permit evil? Why would he permit evil? Hasn't that bugged you? It's bugged me. I know it's bugged you. Well, maybe God has a greater good. He's got to make, you know, uh, he's got to permit evil to make possible some greater good or to avoid some greater evil. In other words, God always has a reason. Just because we don't know it doesn't mean that there is one, that there is not one. Okay, so what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Nothing really follows from the point. Um. The fact that we do not know why God permits evil does not disqualify us from holding to that God exists. We're just, as if you think about it, we're limited in our knowledge just like the, the, the atheist is limited in their knowledge. You know? We're on the same field, in a sense. Okay? But just because I don't know something or the reason for why X is doesn't mean that there isn't a good reason for it. And if you have kids or if you're um, leading people or if you are um, uh, in some kind of authority where you've got to just tell people what to do sometimes and you can't explain yourself and that you see the big picture and they don't, that can cause problems in your interpersonal relationships, huh? Yes, it does. It does. It does. Okay. So, why would God permit evil? Number one, human free will. That's one reason for why God might permit evil. Uh, Our choices. Our choices, our choices, our choices. You know, much of the evil that's in the world comes directly as a result from human choices. However free they are, They're significant. They have to have some level of freedom in order to be significant, in order for us to be morally culpable before a holy God. So there's some degree of free choice, which is a condition for 
God either approving or disapproving of how we live. Okay, so human free will is one of them. If choice is a condition for doing what is good, then guess what? It's also a condition for doing what is evil, right? Yes? Okay. I'm glad you agree. Okay. Secondly, an orderly universe is another reason for why God might permit evil. You know, evil, and, and what we're talking about here is evil that does not result from our actions, from human actions. It is what's called non-moral evil. Um, uh, Michael Peterson, philosopher, says this. The same water which quenches the thirst can also drown a person. The same drug that alleviates pain can also cause a crippling psychological addiction. The same sun which gives light and life can parch fields and bring famines. The same knife can cut a nice piece of steak and feed you or kill your neighbor. See what I'm saying? So, anyway. It's, um, it's, it's a non-moral thing. It becomes a moral thing when it goes into a moral agent. But anyway, that was a bad... Forget, just forget I said that. Now, people complain when it comes to um, earthquakes, floods, tornadoes. People die in, in these disasters. And um, we, want, we want them not to, to happen. But if you recall... A couple of weeks ago when I was doing arguments for the existence of God, that one of the things that argues for God's existence is the order in the universe. And one of the things that shows the order in uh, the universe and specifically um, in the earth so that human beings can live in the earth is earthquakes. Do you recall that? Where earthquakes, the seismic activity is necessary for the the nutrients that are at the bottom of rivers and oceans to come back up and you know um, and feed those that need what it gives so you know that that's that that's something we've got to consider it, the the fact of the matter is scientists have have shown that earthquakes are necessary for life on earth to flourish yeah um How about this? Soul making. Another reason for why God might permit evil is for you and I to become more virtuous human beings. And the fact of the matter is virtues don't come cheaply, do they? How do you grow? How does anyone grow? And I'm not talking, you know, physically. I know you eat too much, you get fat. I get that. I'm talking about how do you grow in your character? Usually it's what? Through adversity. That's where you grow. That's where you have the opportunity to grow. You know, how do you get stronger? You know, you lift weights. You, you, you know, you go biking. You do some form of that physical activity. Why? Because you need it to grow, to get stronger. Okay. So that's another reason for why God would allow, permit, evil. And um, the fact of the matter is that no pain, no gain. You've heard that, right? I mean, the athlete or the concert pianist, they do not excel in their craft. They do not get better by just kicking back and, you know, clicking the TV set, watching Netflix, you know, ordering pizza and drinking beer, you know, every night. They don't do that. They work hard at their craft. Hours and hours and hours and hours. And, and so the fact of the matter is that for the believer, uh, the Apostle Paul articulates this in Romans 5, 3 through 4 real well. He says this, 
And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Who's experiencing hardships right now, today? Either in a relationship, or something's going on, and it's causing... You want to do something that you know you better not, because it would not please God, so you submit to Him. Yes? God is working through that hardship in your life to make you more like Jesus. To make me more like Jesus. What about what's called gratuitous evil? The problem of gratuitous evil. Some hold that the greater good arguments that I've just given for God allowing evil um, as a necessary condition for the attainment of some greater good uh, collapses. Um, and, and here's why. Because gratuitous evil seems senseless, mindless, meaningless, that there's no purpose to it. That's what gratuitous evil means. You know, why do so many people have to die? What purpose can it possibly accomplish? Okay. So one version of the argument of gratuitous evil goes like this. If God exists then all evil has a justifying reason. But it's not the case that all evil has a justifying reason, therefore God does not exist. Okay, did you hear that? In other words, the second premise, it's not true that all evil has a justifying reason. That's another way of saying it. There's no reason for it that justifies it, that warrants it to be so. Okay. So what's going on here is this. If the premises are true, then the conclusion is certainly true. Okay? But premise two isn't true. You know, how does a critic know that the second premise is true? Again, I, I brought this up earlier. How could any human being know that gratuitous evil exists? Think about it. We're finite. We're limited in our knowledge. Okay? Our claim, the God of Scripture, is all-knowing. He's not only all-knowing, but he's also all-wise. Which means he does not waste anything, including our failures. If you love him, if you're his, he uses even your sin. It's amazing. He uses even my sin for my good. How in the world does he do that? Well, I don't know. Why don't you ask him? I mean, he upholds all things by the word of his power. How the heck does, how do you do that? The greatest conundrum is this. The very thing Satan thought he was doing to defeat the Son of God is the, was in the very mind of God to purchase sinners. The greatest evil that was ever committed brought about the greatest good. The redemption of God-belittling, God-hating human beings. What's that? Oh. So, some things do appear to be gratuitous, don't they? I mean, come on. Sometimes, don't you ever feel like, oh my gosh, when is this going to be over? You know, how much longer do I have to deal with this human being? I mean, really, Lord. I mean, please, Jesus, just deal with this person. Or get them out of my life. I got the lesson. I got the lesson. Right? Probably not. 
So, simply because the theists can't prove that all evils in the world are not gratuitous does not mean that some of them are. Okay? And now, when we're dealing with, okay, we've answered some sticky uh, uh, allegations raised against uh, theism, but how do non-Christian worldviews deal with the problem of evil? they got to deal with it too. Right? So how do you deal with it? Well, there's two examples here. First of all, the naturalistic worldview and then the pantheistic worldview deals with it. And essentially, naturalism, as a worldview, doesn't have any logical warrant or justification for believing in an objective good or evil because all you are is a brain and matter. When you die, that's it. There is no God. All there is is the physical world, and that's it. You know what that means? If there's no transcendent agent outside of the natural order, then human beings are the measure of all things, which leads to mere subjectivity. They have to relativize the problem of evil. They have to, if they're going to be consistent, in their system. Okay? Now, what a lot of people do in our culture, they're very syncretistic, you know, uh, people that, that um, especially involved in New Age um, spirituality, they will take a mishmash of different religions and, you know, tailor-make it to their own, you know, doing. But when you... <laughs> it doesn't work. You, you want to be... One of the things, one of the, one of the, the tests for um, believing that a, a truth claim is true is its internal consistency. How can you live out the natural outflow of the truth claim? Okay? If all I am is a brain and that's it, and I could treat you any way I want because there is no God. There is no life after death. So if I want to, I can be the sociopath of sociopaths and go on a killing rampage or or, or be burning down the houses of people on the west side and be fine. It's not a big deal. Why? Because I'm the measure of all things. That is living out the logical ramifications of the worldview. If man is the measure of all things, we're in big trouble. And we talked about that, didn't we? First week or second week? I think first week. Anyway. So, bottom line here is this. The naturalist has disqualified herself or himself from the beginning. They can't even deal with this issue. They can't deal with it intellectually from their worldview. Because ultimately, they're going to relativize it. And, and you know what? It's an uncomfortable thing. But they're going to have to relativize it. There's the mannishness of man. You know, that Francis Schaeffer talked about God created us in his image. God created this world in such a way that it has a design and a purpose. And if you go, if you submit to his design, there's flourishing. If you don't, there is decay. There is um, evil. So, naturalism, you know, their attacks to try to embarrass us as Christians, um, they might as well just sit down. and You're not even part of this discussion here based on your worldview. Secondly, there's what's, uh, pantheism. And the pantheistic worldview has a major problem. And here's the problem. If 
God is all in all is one. There's no distinction between good and evil. If there's no distinction between good and evil, guess what? This is only an illusion. And if this is an illusion, then this is not real. So evil is not real. Your problem is the way you think. You're not enlightened. Okay? Um, you know, you're not seeing things the way you should. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem they have any sure footing from which to launch their attacks against us as believers. Just ask them, well, if there are no distinctions, what is the grounds for good, for evil? Are you the measure of all things? Just ask questions. Ask questions. Let them do the work. Learn to ask questions. You know what our, you know what our qualification is as Christians to talk about this and to deal with it? We, unlike the pantheist, unlike a lot of new age thinking, is this, that we do not deny the problem of evil. Evil is neither relative nor is it an illusion. It's real. It's real. And so the problem of evil is a serious matter and we can't be taking it lightly. But many hold this as the biggest block and hindrance for them to become Christians. And what I I just want to say to you is we have over 2,000 years of family wisdom. Great men and women of God have dealt with, with this issue. And we do not want to neglect their wisdom. So lastly, you know, that's the deductive and inductive problem of evil. Now I want to give you some advice uh, concerning the problems of evil. It's application time. Okay. First of all, we need to avoid two extremes. Either over-obsessing over suffering and evil, which usually makes it worse, okay, or trivializing it, okay, which, you know, manifests itself in trite responses to people that are hurting with, oh, it'll all work out, you know, um, you know, let go, let God. And you know what? Sometimes I'm not saying that people don't mean those things when they're saying it. I think a lot of times they just come across very unhelpful. They're very discouraging. And instead of uh, 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 building up, um, they leave you discouraged. They, they leave you just like, you know, I want to beat, beat your head. Get out of my face kind of a thing, you know. Um, I, I'm sure you've done it. I know I've done it, you know, and I'm not try. I don't try to do it. But, you know, we want to avoid those two extremes. I've over obsessed over suffering in my life. <laughs> you know, it's been a time of great um, thought and darkness and gloom and writing poems. I mean, what else? You know, if, you, if, you, if the depression's on, man, it's time to get the pen out and start writing a poem. And there's a lot of truth to that, by the way. God has used that as a means to get me out of the gloom. Huh, honey? Okay. So we want to avoid those two extremes. Now, we also want uh, to uh, not fall into common mistaken assumptions. Okay. Here's one. That God punishes our sin. You know, the fact of the matter is that all suffering and death is not punishment for sin. It's not. Think about it. Uh, Romans 8, verses 20 through 21. 
Paul says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Adam's disobedience affected the creation. God kept his word. Okay? The dog, your cat, didn't do anything wrong. Okay? Um, the man that was born blind from birth, remember, um, I, I said this earlier, um, you know, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Again, you've got the whole issue of God's not punishing us for sin. Here's another one, and this is big. Are you listening? Okay. God must not love me. Ever feel that way? Come on. Ever feel like God doesn't love you? I mean, a Christian 30 years experienced that, right? Yes, it's true. Feeling like God doesn't love you, why? Because you're in a lot of pain. You're hurting. I mean, everything's falling apart. Nothing's going well. You lost your job. You've lost your health. You've lost your family. You've lost your house. The only thing you have on is a clothes on your back. What do you do? Well, you don't believe that God doesn't love you. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says this. I love this. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear that? Nothing can separate you from the love of God, including death. How about this one? God gives us what we deserve. It's almost like some form of Christian karma. Okay? The Bible doesn't teach this. The Bible doesn't teach karma. Okay? Karma, you get what you deserve. Mercy, you don't get what you deserve. Yeah, the, 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 the what's it called? The principle of sowing and reaping. Yes, we live in God's world. He created in such a way that if you sow seed here, you know, you're going to get a crop. I get that. But the Bible does not teach that God gives us what we deserve. If you're a believer, you did not get what you deserve. Which was hell. Because of your rebellion in Adam toward your creator. Who gives you the breath so that you might hate him. And doesn't, you know, charge you rent right now for it. The Bible doesn't teach this. I mean, think about Job. Remember Job? Have any of you ever read the book of Job? Okay. Book of Job is, is, uh, is hard reading for people like, you know, in the 21st century. Um, but what happened in Job's life? He lost everything. He was a righteous man. He was a God-fearing man. He lost his health, his wealth, his family. 
Okay? And in response to the questions Job presents to God, and there are a lot of them, God asks Job this. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then he just threw a litany of questions. You know, Job 38 uh, through uh, uh, Job um, 41. I mean, he's just... Job's going, okay, I got it, God. I'm done. I'm not done with you. Get over here. And he's humbled. And he's humbled. The understanding, the depths of questions of evil and morality, their justness or injustice of suffering... In a nutshell, they are out of Job's league to understand the creator-creature distinction again. You see that? Bam! Right there. They're out of his league. And a lot of the questions we raise, they're out of our league. Let's think of, let's, let's face it, we human beings think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, don't we? We usually tend to have more confidence and competence, right? Come on. It's true. Well, I've experienced it in my life, you know. God wants to remedy that from us. So he will humble us for our good and the good of the people around us, of course. So here's the issue. Demanding answers is one thing. Asking for answers is another thing. You know, God doesn't tell Job, shut up. He he doesn't say, don't seek answers. But what God is telling Job is this. um, You know, you're demanding something from me. You have no capacity to absorb. That's humbling, isn't it? I mean, I want to continually grow. It's like, wow, I I can't get this. Little biography. When I was a kid, I could not sit still. I definitely got to have ADD even now. I couldn't sit still to such a degree that I got kicked out of Catholic preschool. Okay? Um, uh, in third grade, I was out in the hallway at least half the year learning how to handwrite. I can handwrite for a guy. Okay. Because I just couldn't, I couldn't sit still. I couldn't sit still. Why am I bringing this up? I just forgot. (laughs) Oh, okay, great. I did not like school. I hated it. It was boring to me. I loved playing soccer. I loved playing soccer and I played it. For quite a few years. But when I became a Christian, something happened to me. I started reading. I became a reader. I became a reader. Now, why did I say that? I just forgot again. (laughs) This is bad. Oh, none of us likes to feel stupid, right? I don't like to feel stupid. I don't like not having an answer. You know, you know what I'm saying? None of us in here like feeling like we're stupid and we surely do not want to come under the teaching of somebody who we think is stupid. That they don't know what they're talking about. We don't do that as human beings. That's part of the image of God created in us. We ought not want to be under somebody who is stupid to teach us their stupid ways. Right? No, I mean, that's a good thing. Okay? But the fact of the matter is this, compared to God, we're all stupid. And and that's okay. We tend to compare ourselves among ourselves, right? Of course. That's what we do. Wow, that person's really, really smart. Man, that person can really play 
you know, their guitar. My gosh, did you hear that person's voice? Oh, gosh. Did you hear how well that person argued? Wow. So we compare ourselves a lot of times so that we feel better about ourselves. It's like, come on, man. That's a waste of time. Jesus said, don't do that. Don't do that. Be content with who you are in me, and I will take you where I want to take you. You're my child. I love you. You have, you have a place that nobody else can occupy in my kingdom. Your personality, your, your family of origin, your brokenness, the good and the bad. I'm going to use that in your life. The fact of the matter is, we hate being weak. And the reality is, we are all weak. You're strong in one area, you're weak in another. In fact, our strengths have an an opposite weakness. Anyway, can a three-year-old child understand the grown-up world? Exactly. Can a finite creature understand the depths and purposes of the infinite God? Exactly. Okay. So the big question is this. How much is God in control? How much is he in control? Well, he's the creator. He's the sustainer of the world. He's absolutely in control. By virtue of being creator. He sustains everything. That is so much power. Have you ever thought of that? Just sit down and think about, this is crazy. The power it takes to hold up everything. Nothing works outside of his providential care. Ephesians 1.11 says this. Paul is saying this of Christians. Having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. God works all things for His purposes according to the counsel of His will. There's so much there I just don't understand. But I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to trust Him like Joseph. When at the end of Joseph's, you know, the account of Joseph, where his brothers realize that it's him, and then they come together, You talk about somebody who got mistreated. Joseph got mistreated. And Joseph said, what you meant for evil, God intended for my good. Christian, you're not alone. Jesus suffers with you. You're not alone. Christianity is the only religion. It is the only religious thought. It is the only worldview where God suffers for His people and with them in Christ. There's a hymn that's, that says, um, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. 
He's a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's also a merciful High priest, Hebrews two seventeen and 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And he's also an involved savior. Remember when Paul was persecuting the church in Acts chapter 9? And all of a sudden, man, his world stopped. And he goes, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You don't think Jesus takes personally when his church is being persecuted? You don't think he takes it personally when people are mistreating you because you're walking with him? He does. Fact is, God has a purpose. God has a purpose in our suffering. Paul learned, Paul learned to be content in all things. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. Abraham, Moses, all of the saints from the past experienced tremendous hardships in their lives, some more than others. Why? So that they might come to trust and put their confidence in the God who raises the dead. He's calling for a deeper walk. You got suffering? You got hardship? Paul said it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's a rhetorical question. Nothing. Not even death. You can comfort others. This is huge. The problem of evil and suffering is at the core a real, deep, human problem. It's not just the philosophical syllogisms that we exercise so that we can get at truth. It's way more than that. It's a real problem. People are really hurting. In here, represented in this room, there's pain in each and every one of our lives. I know it, because you're breathing. And, you're, you know, you've got, you know, you're... You're not a three-year-old. You've gone through it. Some of you more than others. But you can comfort others. The fact of the matter is that we as believers can bring real answers to real problems with the power of God. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3-7. through 7. I love this scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction, so that, it's a purpose, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which with, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. 
If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so you also are sharers of our comfort. One thing this text definitely teaches is this. Our suffering is not just about us. There's a redemptive purpose in it. God's suffering in Christ is the solution for the problem of evil and suffering. It's the solution. C.S. Lewis said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You know, suffering and evil reminds us of one thing. Things are not the way they ought to be. We know that. But that day is coming where God will, through his son, rectify everything. Where the new heavens and the new earth are finally here. And there will be no more tears. No more sorrow. No more pain. For the former things will be gone. And so as a final charge to you. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready. To give an answer to everyone who asks you. To give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Lord, I thank you that you are the God who begins a work and you complete it. Lord, I thank you that each and every one of us in here, we're in different places in our pursuit of you. But my prayer, benediction is this. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you, West Side Vineyard, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.